and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, this two-edged sword of law and gospel recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, February 8th, we're studying Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. In the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Christians believe, teach, and confess forgiveness of sins should be sought in Christ. This worship is the highest worship of Christ. And that is precisely what we see from the woman who anoints Jesus' feet in the text for today. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flammy. Pastor Flammy serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, it's great to be back. Let's talk a little context, Pastor Flammy. What should we know about Luke, where he's been, what he's been doing before the text we've got for today? So we're still towards the beginning, I think, of Jesus's earthly ministry before his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Most notably, you'll notice in the previous chapters um, that Jesus is calling his disciples, he's gathering them, and then he begins his ministry of preaching and teaching and healing. And we've noticed before that the healing points especially to the word, the word that saves the soul. Uh, And that's the main thing. If the soul is saved, then the body will follow in the resurrection. And the bodily uh, healings that Jesus did point to the most significant thing that Jesus gives, which is mercy, mercy from the Father, mercy that cannot be found from the Pharisees and their preaching of the religion of the law. Uh, You'll also notice a little bit earlier in uh, chapter 7, in the immediate context, John the Baptist uh, reaches out to Christ through his disciples and desires to hear a word of comfort. And Jesus does so. And the most important thing that I think that Jesus says uh, to John to, to, uh, for his disciples to relate back to their teacher is that the poor have the good news preached to them, right? That's, uh, the, that is the main thing that Jesus is doing here in this preaching ministry. He, he gives the good news of God's mercy, kindness, and grace, undeserved, uh, to these poor people who are gathering around him, you know, the people who are sinners, uh, the people who are told by the Pharisees that they have no share with God nor his uh, fa- nor the divine family of the Jews or the or even the kingdom of heaven, right? Uh, and so Jesus uh, now goes and shows us in this story that we're about to get into how his preaching ha- uh, so wonderfully affects those who hear it that they seek him out to render the sacrifices of thanksgiving. And Jesus receives this worship of faith, this adoration, and, and then he also teaches the Pharisees that they too, and if they desire to be saved, if they desire to be a member of God's kingdom and to sit at the, the feast that has no end in the kingdom of heaven, then they must uh, give up their worship of the law and their ideas about keeping the law perfectly and being, enter in, being able to enter into righteousness and salvation that way, and to become like this This woman, uh, who is considered to be in the town a sinner, but according to Jesus, is righteous, you know, according to her faith. 
in your notes that you sent me ahead of time, Pastor Philemon, you said that this is a gem of a text that we're going to look at here at the end of Luke 7. What What is so beautiful about this text? Yeah, the, the beauty of this text is, um, like Melanchthon was saying in the, uh, in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, a, a demonstration, a picture, a very uh, vivid illustration of the worship of faith, you know? Uh, what does this woman have to give to Jesus? Nothing except her guilt or shame. Her guilt and her shame, I think, on any other night would have kept her from Simon's house. But because Jesus is there, Simon's house is transported, it was transformed, so to speak, from being the, the house of the law, right, to being a sanctuary because Jesus is within, a place where she can find rest for her soul. And so you, you see uh, very vividly how this woman uh, pushes in against sort of the, the, the consternation and uh, also the, the consternation and probably the frustration of the Jews there and, and, and comes close to Jesus and weeps over him, uh, anoints him, and wipes uh, uh, Jesus' feet with her hair, you know? And as you're watching this, it is a shocking image. Like, I mean, who does this? It, it, especially in Middle Eastern culture, the feet are like the dirtiest and most unworthy part of, the, of a person. And this woman is worshiping at Jesus' feet, you know? Uh, showing it such love, care, and affection. And of course, the Jews are like, well, well, we'll get into this in a little bit, right? But the, the, the image is so startling that the Jews are like, well, this has to disqualify Jesus from being a prophet. Maybe before we thought he was a worthy rabbi. Maybe he's one of us. He, he speaks well concerning the word of God. He doesn't make mistakes concerning what Moses says, right? But if he uh, is in fellowship with sinners, then he cannot be a true prophet nor in fellowship with us, right? Uh, and then Jesus tells this beautiful parable that we'll get into, uh, sometimes called an illustration, uh, which makes the point very clear. The reason why this woman is showing such adoration and love and weeps over Jesus is because of the great gift of the forgiveness of sins. And the forgiveness of sins is received with great joy and this kind of thanksgiving only from uh, a real sinner, you know? not a Pharisee who considers himself to be, again, not a sinner. That's kind of, I don't know, have we dealt with different definitions of Pharisee? This would probably be a pretty good one. A person who considers himself to be not a sinner, right? somebody who considers himself to be righteous according to his obedience to the law and the traditions of, of the elders, right? And so he has no need of what Jesus is here to give, good news to the poor. Uh, and like I said, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more, and then you could just see how Jesus, instead of being embarrassed about what this woman is uh, doing, uh, instead, he receives her worship and exalts it into the very highest place. It says, unless, and basically says to Simon the Pharisee, unless you worship like this woman, uh, you can't be saved. Because he says to this woman, your faith has saved you. Your trust in my word, in the good news that you have heard from me, right, uh, has made you pure and righteous in God's sight. Uh, you have no shame nor guilt before God now because you have received my word and my word has cleansed you and set you free. Beautiful word of comfort from this text in Luke 7. Let's go ahead and read what St. Luke writes. This begins now in Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, 
she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Then Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him five hundred denarii, the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's our text for today. That's Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. So, Pastor Fleming, just set the scene for us. Jesus goes to this Pharisee's house to eat, and they're reclining at table. Just set the scene. What should we be picturing in our minds? What's what's going on here? Yeah, so Alfred Edersheim, uh, whose uh, book I, I encourage the laity to go out and, and to purchase if you can get a hold of it, which is called uh, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. He uses a lot of uh, Jewish sources uh, to uh, help us to understand what this looked like. Uh, this is probably an inner court uh, uh, that is uh, through uh, in, in the insider. It's towards the center of the Pharisee's house. Uh, he's probably one of the leading Pharisees of the city, so it's not like he's living in a shack or something like that. It's a it's a sizable place. Uh, he probably has uh, quite a family and also servants to wait upon him. Uh, nevertheless, because of the nature of houses back that Edersheim talks about, how uh, various uh, portals and gateways would be open to the different rooms and even out into the street, which helps to, uh, to which helps us to understand how this woman came in. Right uh, now, as they are sitting, or they are not sitting, <laughs> but instead in the Greek it says they are reclining at the table. Uh, that is, that they are laying upon their sides, propped up on one arm. Uh, and uh, their body is extended lengthwise across the table, uh, uh, alongside the table, and their feet are, are uh, kind of pointing towards the, the wall because their knees are bent at like a 90-degree angle, which makes a lot of sense. In the Middle East, to this day, the feet are considered ritualistically unclean, kind of a taboo place of the body that should be out of sight, out of mind. And so how important is that, that the feet would be pointed towards the walls of the room while they are reclining at table, right? And as they're sitting there and eating and speaking, uh, uh, probably having a conversation concerning Moses or the prophets, this woman comes in. Now, this doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, our, our, our reason would suggest, well, somebody would have to stop her. She, maybe this story doesn't, it couldn't possibly be true because how could a sinful woman such as this be able to make it this far into the house with nobody stopping her? Well, I mean, it all has to do with the boldness of faith, you know? 
Uh, and I don't know if you read many uh, detective novels, if you read many spy novels, or just a lot watch James Bond films, right? Uh, he undercover, the, the protagonist undercover is able to get into all these different places. Why? Because he has boldness, right? Uh, he has confidence in himself. If you act like you belong, guess what? People are going to uh, let you go, <laughs> let you get into where you want to be. And this is what this woman does. She doesn't care if somebody puts up a hand and, and suggests, well, maybe you should wait outside, right? She's not looking for an excuse to turn around. Instead, it seems as if the text indicates here that as soon as they begin to recline and begin the conversation, already the woman is moving into the house, into the room, and moves to the, the wall where Jesus' feet are pointed uh, away from the table and begins to worship the Lord there at his feet, right? Treating Jesus' feet as the place where she should, you know, shed her tears of thanksgiving and joy and uh, the place where she should give her anointing, right? And the place where even her hair suffices to, to wipe the, the Savior's feet, which to her are precious, even, even though doubtless to the Pharisees, the feet of Jesus are anything but precious. It's something that you shouldn't even think about, let alone speak over. And here is this woman kissing them, right? Uh, and so this, again, this gets into the, the startling aspect of the scene, right? Uh, and uh, it, it works today for us. The Holy Spirit uh, continues to, to show us this picture and help to impress upon us that something significant is happening here. And it helps to demonstrate for us, right, the kind of love that we ought to have towards Christ because our sins too have been forgiven, you know? The way you talked about the—we'll talk a little bit more about the woman. You know, she's just introduced, although strikingly, you know, Luke says, behold, a mm -hmm. woman of the city who was a sinner. But that's all that's really— said about her, she apparently has heard something of Jesus. What What is it about Jesus that has attracted her to him? Yeah, that's right. These things don't come out of a vacuum. Uh, the Word of God is powerful and effective, and the Word of the Lord is what sets our hearts free from guilt and shame and bondage to sin. Uh, Alfred Edersheim suggests that because this is towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is probably preaching the sermon uh, that you heard on the mount and also on the plain, of course, uh, which concerns the law and how the Pharisees cannot escape from the law, but instead it, it, uh, it, it captures all people under the bondage of sin. And the one who is truly going to be blessed is the one who first considers himself to be poor before God, right? Yeah. Thanks be to God that in Matthew chapter 11, uh, one of these earlier sermons is spoken of where Jesus says, come to me, all who are heavy laden and who labor, and I will give you rest, right? This beautiful sermon about how Jesus gathers the, the poor, the, the afflicted, the sinner close to himself to bless them with his word and with his mercy uh, is the motivating factor. This is what gave the woman joy and thanksgiving and has given her the boldness of faith to push through the outer rooms into this inner dining area to where she can worship Jesus' feet, you know? And for her, it's not necessary to go to Jesus's uh, upper body or anything like that. If she, all she can do is reach Jesus's feet, that's where she worships, right? I mean, what a beautiful picture of penitence and also of justification that, uh, yes, it's still Jesus's feet, but it's still Jesus and he is there and he doesn't cast her off, and, but instead he receives her. He doesn't rebuke her at all. It reminds me much of, and later on in Luke, he has the, the story of the Pharisee and the publican. Uh, what is this, Luke 18? 
and yeah. and uh, and there uh, you have the Pharisee who's up at the front of the church, you know, standing up, praying in a pompous way. I give thanks to you, O Lord, that I'm not like these other men, sinners, tax collectors. <laughs> You know, as if the whole point of worship is to go and to say, God, you, you gave me your law, man, did I make the most of it? And now here I am, I stand with you at the front of the, at the front of the sanctuary, right? And then you have the sinner who sneaks in the back, right? Who can't even lift his eyes towards heaven, which is in the woman's case, right? To lift her eyes away from the feet of Jesus towards his head. And he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, right? Now, what would, what did Jesus say in, in, in that in that parable, he said, I tell you, the one who went down to his house justified was not the Pharisee, but the, the sinner, right? The man who confessed his heart, who had nothing but the sacrifice of, of a, a broken heart because the law, instead of lifting him up to heaven, has, has cast him into the pit of hell and he has nothing left except to beg God of his mercy. And this is what God is eager to give us in the person of Christ, right? Ah, uh, Yeah. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember. Is there what, what there? I feel like I missed an aspect of your question. No, I, I think I think you hit it. I mean, just why what she recognized from Jesus that mm. that drew her to him in this way to express this kind of love. And I mean, you you made connections later in Luke and to Matthew chapter eleven. As and as you were talking, my mind was going to some of the things we've already looked at here on Sharper Iron previously, particularly in the the way that. She comes in great humility to Jesus. Mm. As you said, she's willing to to worship there at his feet, the most unclean part of his body. And yet, at the same time, the great boldness that she has just in coming to Jesus and not letting anything, even the social awkwardness of the situation, stop her, which which reminds me of, of several other people in the Gospel of Luke that we've encountered so far who are, I think, similar and almost like they're building to a bit of a crescendo with this woman here. So, and there's probably more that I, I'll miss, but the ones that come to mind would be the centurion earlier in Luke chapter seven. Oh yeah. Who, you know, who recognizes his own unworthiness to, to have Jesus come under his roof and yet lays before Jesus, this bold request, please speak the word and my servant will be healed. Mm. The other one that, that comes to mind is, is the, the leper who comes to Jesus previously, who starts his request off, you know, if you will, if you're willing, Lord, there's that humility. And yet he says, please let me be clean. That that bold request. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's almost like, and of course, I mean, I, there's other examples too, that the folks who, the the four friends who bring the paralytic to Jesus yes. and are willing to make the hole in the roof yes. <laughs> to get him in front of Jesus. Correct. And I think there's, there's especially a connection to that one too, because the first thing Jesus does there is forgive the sins. It's almost like this woman has, maybe heard about these things that have happened in Galilee and she's putting it together and she realizes here's the guy who can forgive my sins. I'm going to go worship him because he's come for me. This, you know, the poor in spirit. Right. No, those stories are very important. They belong together. And, and that's why Matthew clumps them together in his gospel after the sermon on the Mount. So there you have the order of things. Jesus preaches concerning the kingdom of heaven. And then, then, and then those who are cast off and unworthy are the ones to approach Jesus, not the Pharisees, but the leper who is ceremonial, ceremonially unclean because of his bodily affliction. And then also, shockingly, the Gentile, right, uh, who has no share with God and his holy family, but instead, in the boldness of faith, uh, petitions Jesus, saying, 
uh, uh, that, that you can do this even with your very word. He confesses Jesus' divinity and he seeks Jesus out for his mercy. And Jesus, of course, receives these outcasts, these, cast, uh, these people who are uh, uh, typically seen by the Pharisees and the other religious experts to be um, outside of uh, you know, the true religion, so to speak. You know? uh, they, are, they, are, uh, they are not worthy to access the inner sanctum, to come close to God, right? They are on the outer, on the outer circle, the outer fringes, right? But it is now with Jesus coming into the world and especially through his sermons, through his preaching and teaching, that the outer circle has now become, fascinating, in a fascinating way, the inner circle, right? And, and so the main thing that happens in, in Luke chapter 7 here, much like what we saw before and that you mentioned, I'm so glad that you mentioned that, was that uh, this woman who is um, a sinner, uh, who by rights belongs to hell and the devil, right? She is the one who is now the closest to Jesus. I mean, yes, Jesus is at a dinner party. Yes, the Pharisee is probably one of the leading men of the town. And this is like the main event, but the real main event isn't the dinner with the Pharisee. It's now the, the worship this woman gives to Jesus uh, from faith. Well, and I mean, just to go back into Luke 4 again, the, the sermon that he preaches there in Nazareth mm. and the passage that he quotes from Isaiah 61, which he says is fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, again, you're seeing, I think we see here in Luke chapter 7, how that text from Isaiah 61 the way we talked about it is it becomes programmatic for for what Jesus does. You know, here he is proclaiming good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, mm-hmm. liberty for the those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This woman has been set free. Yes. She lives in the Lord's favor because of Jesus. And the the overflow is just, I mean, it's it's remarkable what she does just there at Jesus' feet. It's it's fantastic. Yes, absolutely. No, that's that's right. And and that's a very good point about the sermon that Jesus preaches at Nazareth, it's, it's all of like a one-sentence sermon, and yet it does everything. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what is it? Uh, and what's it, what, it, what is it? It's proclaimed the Lord's favor, right? His mercy, his good news. And this is the same uh, text from which Jesus preaches when he uh, gives the good news again to John the Baptist in prison, when he uh, asks, are you the Christ or shall we look for another? So let's let's talk a little. We got about four minutes here before the break, but let's let's start talking about the the opposite reaction and Simon the Pharisee. Now you you mentioned you know we see all of these outcasts, these ones we would probably think of as unclean. They're the ones that are coming to Jesus. Simon and and not the Pharisees, but Simon it seems is the one who's invited Jesus to come eat with him. So there's some sort of and, and probably the wrong sort of, but there's some sort of interest on Simon's part toward Jesus. It does it does strike me as ironic that Simon the Pharisee wants to eat with Jesus mm. when the Pharisees have been upset with Jesus because of the people he's eating with and yet they're willing to eat with Jesus. There there just seems to be a bit of irony. You guys should probably recognize if you want to eat with Jesus and he's willing to eat with you and he's also willing to eat with these other people maybe there's not so much difference between you Pharisees and these, quote, sinners as you think they are. It just strikes me as maybe Simon's a little bit, well, he is. He's blind here, it seems. Talk a little bit about what's going on with Simon, his attitude, and the especially the fact that he's eating with Jesus. Yeah, as, as, uh, th- supposedly this took place close to Nain somewhere, and Jesus is moving through the countryside, preaching, teaching, and healing. 
Uh, and this is early enough in his ministry, according to the commentators, such that the Pharisees see him as a fellow rabbi. Alfred Edersheim even goes out of his way to say that Jesus would wear uh, the vestments of uh, one of the rabbis, uh, you know, a particular kind of robe that was cut in a certain way and even a stole, right? And, and, so, and, and then when the Pharisees would hear him, uh, they saw the people who were going to him, who were rejoicing at his teaching, right? And, and, uh, and they also heard the authority with which he preached, which was recognized, I think, universally. Uh, and, and so it could be at this point, much like how Nicodemus sought out Jesus to say, hey, we know you're from God. Because <laughs> nobody could do the signs that you're doing unless he has been sent by God, right? Uh, that you're more than just a rabbi, you are also a prophet. I mean, that seems to be the question. Is Jesus not just a, a rabbi, but because he does these wonderful works, uh, that he seems to have power from God and authority from God, is he also a great prophet? Has the time of the silence of the prophets come to an end? Not only have we had John the Baptist, but now here is Christ, uh, not just preaching and teaching, but also healing, right? And the, and the works are the signs that point to the importance of his message. Um, and so that seems to be, so that kind of helps us to understand this dinner as not uh, uh, merely a, a gamotlikite, let's all get together and have a beer and, and uh, sort, sort of uh, talk about things that we, that we just, you know, in a shallow, very shallow sense enjoy. This is a real test. And these tests, these dinner tests, uh, become more frequent we learn about. Remember the guy who had dropsy? Uh, who pushed his way also into one of these dinner parties. And, and of course, like Jesus never, you get the sense from that story that he never even looks at the people or he never even really looks at the guy who has dropsy. He heals him, but his eyes are on the Pharisees the whole time and their eyes are on Jesus to see if he'll heal a man on the Sabbath, right? Why? Because it's a test. They want to catch Jesus at a sin. Satan has turned their hearts against the Lord and the truth of the word. Why? Because again, they believe in the false religion of the law, and that's exactly where Satan wants them, right? And so this, the hour is yet early, and the Pharisees don't quite yet know what they're dealing with. They're trying to test out Jesus. They're trying to see, is he a friend or a foe or something else? And I think this, especially this encounter, will help the Pharisees and other religious experts uh, who do not understand uh, the, the doctrine of grace <laughs> from, the, mm. from the Holy Scriptures to see Jesus as an enemy. Right. Yeah, they 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 have Jesus right where they want him. They think they're put him to the test, and we're going to talk more about what happens with that test on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke chapter seven with Pastor Brian Flammy. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, February 8th. We're studying Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50 with Pastor Brian Flammy. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. 
Pastor Flamey, prior to the break, we were talking about how the Pharisees at this point in Jesus' ministry are testing Jesus to see who he is, what he's about, whether he really is who he claims to be. And it sounds like that's exactly what Simon has in mind in verse 39. He observes Jesus and he begins to think to himself, if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't do this. Take us into to how Simon the Pharisee is examining Jesus' answers on this test. Yeah, that's right. Uh it's interesting. I mean, you, you like we said before, they the Pharisees aren't sure what to do with Jesus yet because the the time of Jesus's preaching and teaching ministry is yet early, right? The great uh, fallings away, like in that we read about after the feeding of the five thousand in John six, and the more antagonistic uh, meals that we hear about, which come like in Luke chapter fourteen. That's where that you have the story of the man with dropsy who was healed. And the Pharisees who are staring Jesus down, daring him to heal this man on the Sabbath, right? That's, that happens later. And so, uh, and so the question is, uh, uh, is Jesus a prophet? Is the, the fast of receiving the word uh, from the Lord now over this fast of the word? Because we've received now John and the people hold him to be a prophet, according to the, own, you know, the religious leader's own assessment. And now uh, Jesus is preaching, and not just preaching, but healing, and uh, and giving sight to the blind, right, uh, and making the lame walk again. Now, when this woman comes in, uh, she uh, worships Jesus, and now the the proposition, which is Jesus is a prophet, is thrown into question. Why? Because according to Simon, uh, he thinks that a prophet would have no share with, no fellowship with, no communion with. Uh, a woman who is a sinner. You see, this tells us something about Simon's own understanding of what the church is and who belongs to the true church, right? It is not those who are guilty and, and bear shame and iniquity uh, and who come to Jesus and worship him, but rather those who are probably like himself or maybe some of the other uh, scribes and, and lawyers and, and Pharisees at the table there who consider themselves to be righteous according to their obedience to the law. Right, and so the fellowship, the communion that exists between Jesus and this woman, uh, it is not it, because it, it just starts to disqualify Jesus in, in Simon's sight, right? Because clearly the woman is already disqualified. There is no way she can belong to God, right? Her sins have already disqualified her. There is no help for her, right? They, she's already been written off, and this is why Jesus, by the way, preaches against judging. Apparently, this is what the Pharisees would do. You sinned. Therefore, you're judged. You know, uh, th this is not the law and gospel preaching that we hear in, every Sunday in our, in our Missouri City churches, which is you have sinned, but for as often as you sin, God be praised, Jesus' blood has covered even those sins, right? Uh, for as often as you fall away, God still extends his hand of mercy uh, to grab you up out of the, the waters of judgment and hell and to pull you back into heaven. Uh, that is how wonderful and great uh, the, 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 the atonement is. And the grace that's extended to us through the word, that uh, as often as we sin, and we sin daily and much, uh, the Lord continues to extend us forgiveness. This, is, this just basic fact of how God is towards sinners seems to be lost on Simon, right? And, and hence the test, and hence why he judges in his own mind that Jesus is now potentially disqualified from uh, being in fellowship with him. All right, so Jesus knows what's going on, what Simon's think, thinking. He says, hey, Simon, I want to talk to you. Simon says, go for it. 
Jesus tells a parable about a money lender who forgives some debt. What's the what's the parable and how does Jesus apply that? Yeah, the parable is you have two different uh, debts. One is small, one is large, right? And and apparently, this is sort of a Jewish way of thinking. Uh, and it's a way of argumentation that may have been familiar to Simon and uh, the others like him who meditated on questions of the law, right? Uh, so, so one of the commentators made this excellent point saying, look, if you're uh, evaluating everything according to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right, then there must be proportional love to the debt that's forgiven. Uh, Simon has to come to that conclusion because he's uh, governed by that kind of, uh, 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 that kind of uh, what, do you, what do you call it, retributive justice system. That's how you say it, right? Retri retributive. I think that's right. <laughs> I can see the word in my mind. <laughs> so, so that's and so Jesus says he wants to, because Jesus, as the Son of God, knows what Simon is thinking, and he wants to teach Simon, right, that his thinking is an error, and this is mercy from Jesus, right? I mean, if Jesus had no love towards Simon, what would have Jesus done? He would have remained silent. Uh, he would have received the woman's worship and left it at that. But no, again, Jesus comes for sinners. The woman was a sinner and is now righteous by her faith. And Simon lacks that faith. And so what will Jesus do now for Simon is to instruct him concerning Christian faith. And he said, uh, the person who is forgiven the larger debt, right, is obviously the one who is forgiven more. Simon has to agree with him. He cannot, according to his own uh, understanding of justice, disagree with Jesus, right? And now uh, Jesus uses this to teach uh, the beauty of faith and the saving nature of faith and how the love that is due him as the Messiah and the Son of God, right, ought to also be rendered to him, not just by this woman of the street, but also by Simon and the rest of the Pharisees in the room. Man, I wonder, you hear from time to time, like of guys like Joseph of Arimathea, uh, uh, and of course you, you, we know of Nicodemus. These these men who were either had standing with the Sanhedrin, who were experts in the law, and how they worship Jesus but secretly, you know. And and you get the idea that much of the Jerusalem church after Jesus's ascension into heaven maybe was made up of many of these uh, uh, formerly zealous Pharisees. And some of the Pharisees were, I I wouldn't doubt were. We're very uh, impressed by what Jesus said, right? Had to at least consider it. And perhaps this is part of the reason why men like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, uh, you know, uh, respected Jesus, if not also worshiped him, uh, but not as publicly or outwardly as many of the other disciples who followed him. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's not, it, it, it's not out of the question. Maybe we should even think about Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea being here at this dinner in Luke 7, seeing this and, and this even strengthening their faith such that, you know, it does grow as, as the Gospels continue and we see what they do then at Jesus' burial. I'd, right. I'd never really thought about that before, but I think that's a, that's a good point. So, okay, Jesus gives the, the example and then he explains it to Simon. You know, you, you're right, Simon, you, you got the point. And then he explains it with the, the example of the woman. And this is where we need to make sure we keep the order straight. Mm. Because the way, the way and, and you mentioned it too, you know, that, that the forgiveness of sins should bring about this kind of love. And when Jesus says that at verse 47, it's almost like he, it seems like he reverses the order, but he's not, but we want to make sure we understand this. So verse 47, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. 
we want to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying and the relationship between the faith that receives the forgiveness of sins and then the love that is shown to Jesus. Can can you help us keep that straight, Pastor Flaming? Absolutely. Uh, Good works are the fruit that is born out of the tree of faith, right? And you as a Christian have faith, and from that faith, the Holy Spirit works to bring about much love towards God and towards your neighbor. This is the love that we see in this woman. Now, pay very close attention to verse 47, and you see Jesus says, her sins, which are many, undeniable, she sinned, and the Pharisees know she sinned, and yet he says, they are forgiven. Those sins are remitted. They, they are washed away. Yeah. And so this is the statement of fact. She is forgiven. And now comes the question, for she loved much. There are some, who, uh, uh, there are some folks out there who say that that clause, for she loved much, somehow teaches uh, that this woman this woman's love somehow merited the forgiveness that Jesus speaks. But even in this verse, the order isn't strong enough to support that conclusion because Jesus says at the beginning, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And then the, the, the haughty there, which is that Greek uh, sort of, uh, that, that, that Greek preposition, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that because she loved, therefore she's forgiven. Instead, haunty could be used in a more general sense to connect these two things together. From her forgiveness comes her love. And that is the sense that we should read it, especially given the illustration in the parable. Remember, uh, the forgiveness in the parable comes first. And then as Jesus explains it to Simon, the love comes as a result. That is the, that is the context of this verse. And so verse 47 must be read in as Jesus wants it to be read in the context of the illustration and of what comes later on when he says to the woman, uh, your faith has saved you. He doesn't say your love has saved you. He doesn't even say your faith and love together in some kind of mixture has saved you, but instead faith alone saves. This is extremely Lutheran in the best sense of the term. And when we're Lutherans in the best sense of the term, we're being biblical. We're abiding what Jesus, by what Jesus says here. And you really have to do quite the exegetical backflip, I believe, uh, to come away with an argument that uh, this woman's love has somehow merited forgiveness. Well, you know, just to that, that phrase that Jesus says there in verse 47, I, you explained it very well, particularly in connecting it to the parable. And in the parable, the order is quite clear that the debt is forgiven and then comes the love. And so in the application, the same must be true. The sins are forgiven and then comes the love. And just that, you know, that word in, in the ESV, it's translated for she loved much. It's not a cause and effect relationship, mm-hmm. but rather the the love is the evidence that she has been forgiven. The, the fact that she is overflowing with this love for Jesus is the evidence that the forgiveness was was already given. Mm. And and I don't know, you could tell me if this is a bad idea or not, but one of the ways I've tried to illustrate this is is I could I could say to you uh, it has rained for the sidewalk is wet. Yeah, of now, course. That's a, that you know, I mean, is so, exactly the way that we use language, right? right? Do we mean that the wetness caused the rain? Heavens no. <laughs> right? That's right. The wetness is the evidence that it has rained. In the similar fashion, the love is the evidence she has been forgiven. So again, yes. keeping that order straight, as you said, being Lutheran in the best sense of the term, speaking what the Bible speaks. So I, I at the very beginning, Pastor Flamey, quoted from the 
apology to the Augsburg Confession. And and in my reading of the, the Augsburg Confession in preparation to become a pastor, and since I've been a pastor, this passage from Luke 7 always stands out to me as one of the central, I mean, one of the best things that's there in the, the apology, the Augsburg Confession. Give us a little bit of I mean, what's going on there. How does Philip Melanchthon make use of this passage to make, I think, the same point that we're trying to make, that faith receives the forgiveness of sins and then love follows rather than the opposite order. All right. So remember, in the Pope's church at the time of the Reformation, and even, dare I say, to this day, uh, there is the teaching that to be justified, to be righteous before God, is to uh, become righteous through faith and works, right? So here in the Lutheran Church, we separate out justification, your righteousness by faith alone, and sanctification, which is your Christian life of love, which flows from faith. But it is not the reason for your, again, righteousness before God, your, the saving righteousness, which is given to you as a gift through the word and received by faith. Now, as the Lutherans, uh, Melanchthon, Luther, the others in Wittenberg, and and, uh, and who were influenced by the, just reading the text and not so much by what the commentators had said for a very long time in the Pope's church, as they meditated upon this text, they found a great gem. They found a treasure that this woman who had nothing to offer Jesus is saved, right? Uh, and, and they see in her worship, not so much love that merits forgiveness, but again, following the illustration that Jesus gave to Simon, understanding that from forgiveness comes great love. That is the proper order. Uh, to the, it's, it's kind of funny. We were talking about this before recording, but I dug up some propaganda from the Pope's church <laughs> just to show you how they, how they try to twist this around. Uh, and so this one commentator uh, he said that, uh, he, he says, she was justified, the woman, not so much through her faith as her charity. I mean, he, he even puts the emphasis, oh, it takes the emphasis away from faith and puts it on charity. I mean, this contradicts exactly what Jesus is about to say. Okay, he goes on. Still, she had faith, I guess. We'll admit that, whatever. I'm sorry, I should stop inserting. I'll, the commentator keeps on saying, or she, she would not have come to Jesus to be delivered from her sins. It was. Therefore, her faith working by charity that justified her. And this is the doctrine of the Catholic Church. And what he means by Catholic Church is the Roman Church, the Pope's Church. All right. So justification, according to the Pope's Church, is uh, faith and wor working itself out in charity, combining justification and sanctification together, uh, that faith and works must be together before a person has, uh, before a person uh, has, you know, standing before God, is worthy to enter into God's presence. I mean, the whole doctrine of like purgatory comes from this. Uh, if you die without having uh, uh, achieved enough love in your life, right? Or if you've not purified your soul sufficiently, even though you have faith, guess what? You, you have some work to do. You got to stay after class and you got to get, get that love done in order to become pure and righteous enough to stand before God, right? That, again, that's where purgatory comes from. That's where the, uh, the, you hear your pastors from time to time talk about synergism uh, of, of faith and, and works uh, or even human will uh, entering into the equation in order to be worthy before God. Now, God be praised. Jesus brackets his words, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. He brackets this first with the illustration, and then when he says your faith has saved you, your faith has saved you. 
And Philip Melanchthon, uh, he glories in this text, and he understands how it's used polemically uh, against the Lutherans and, uh, uh, and, and the Reformation Church uh, by saying, well, uh, it's her love that justifies. You see what we could do with this haughty, uh, this, uh, this Greek particle here? We, we could use it to destroy faith alone, by grace alone. And Melanchthon says, God be praised, not so quick. Pay attention to the whole context here. Pay attention uh, to what Jesus, how Jesus exalts faith. Like that the one commentator I just read from, you saw it. He said, her faith, working by charity, justified her. And, and then even before the previous sentence, he said, it's really her charity. And I guess she also had faith, right? That's clearly against the whole point of what's going on here, what Jesus is teaching and what Simon is learning. Yeah, I, I love this this passage from the Apology, and I would I'd like to to talk a little well a couple of things. One, the the passage that I quoted at the very beginning, that this worship that is seeking the forgiveness of sins in Christ mm. is the highest form of worship, and I I do I mean I appreciate the Apologies how that it really he focuses there on that that to go to Christ and to seek from Him those good gifts, that's the highest form of worship, which I think I mean helps keep in in context what this woman is doing and all these extravagant actions, it all comes from the fact that she has sought the forgiveness and then received it there in Christ, which I think, you know, informs our worship today. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, Pastor Flamey, if, if anyone in Roswell, New Mexico ever has this sort of outpouring. Maybe maybe they do. I don't know. It, generally, we tend to be a little more straight-faced in, in Smithville. Germans. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I don't know if you have Germans there in, in Roswell, but that's, we tend to be a little more straight faced, <laughs> but we're seeking the forgiveness of sins in yes. Christ. Yes. And I mean, that, that is the worship. Now that's not to say that our feelings never overflow. I think they do. And, and I mean, I think, I think this probably does happen, but just the way that, that Melanchthon there focuses on going to Christ and seeking from him the forgiveness. And then the realization that wow, he he gave it to me, and and I have the Lord's favor. He's not holding my sins against me. I stand justified mm-hmm. in His sight. That that does start to you know bring a, a joy into my heart. That is does I mean I know sometimes we we kind of hate on feelings, but there are feelings that do come, and and the, I think seeing the woman here and holding those two things together can be helpful for us. Of course, of course they can. I mean, look, worship is faith. And from faith, you bet, comes joy. I mean, that's one of the fruits of faith. And that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Let's not get down on joy. I'm not going to call you a pietist. You don't call me a pietist Thank either, you. okay? Now, okay. consider going to the Lord's altar on Sunday morning. What do you do? Why are you there? You're there because you are a sinner. That's the only reason why you're coming up to the table. You've examined yourself. And not only that, you can discern the body and the blood, which means that you know that in this meal of Jesus' body and blood, the same body that this woman kissed and wept over and anointed, is there for you to forgive you your sins. And what do you do when you come to the Lord's table? You kneel. And not only do you kneel, uh, you know, against sort of the, uh, against the reasonableness of human logic, right? You open your mouth. The body of Christ is placed upon your tongue in this kiss of faith, and you eat Jesus' body for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, right? I mean, this is what we do every Sunday morning when we hear the word and believe it. When we come to the Lord's table in faith and receive the sacrament, right? We worship just as the same woman. You can do it with a straight faith like all the Germans do. I don't care, right? The main thing is that you come 
receive the body of Christ, and what do you say? You say, Amen. I believe it. I am a great sinner, but here is Jesus forgiving me. Just as he has forgiven me from the moment of my baptism, so I continue, like this woman, to seek out Jesus and to worship. Against reason, against even the condemnation of the law, here where Jesus is giving me his body, his blood, for my salvation. With, with that, uh, there's another part of the apology that I, I'm just going to briefly read because it, it lengthened contrasts the woman who we've spent most of our time talking about, and rightly so, with Simon the Pharisee. Mm. And I think we, we want to at least go back to him briefly because, as you said, if Jesus didn't love Simon, he would have just kept his mouth shut. Yeah. But the fact that he addresses Simon at all is a sign of his love. And this is this is what Melanchthon writes, among other things, of course, in the Apology. He, he says, Jesus charges him with lack of holiness and admonishes him by the example of the woman. In this way, Christ shows that it is disgraceful for the Pharisee. While an unlearned woman believes God, he, a doctor of the law, does not believe. Which, <laughs> man, that, that really strikes me. You know, you should the Pharisee is the one that should have gotten Jesus, but this unlearned woman, the sinner, does. Jesus is calling, I think the way that, I don't know if you said it like this, but this, Jesus is telling this Pharisee, you need to be like this woman. Yes. If, if you want to truly worship me, talk, just talk a little bit about that, about what Jesus is, is encouraging, exhorting, calling Simon to. He's, he's calling Simon to repentance and faith. This woman knows who Jesus is and she's come to worship Jesus. It is saved, you know, according to the faith that, that the Holy Spirit has granted her through hearing the word and believing it. And, and the Pharisee, again, is there not to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Uh, as Melanchthon is pointing out to us, he's there to test God. <laughs> he's, there to, he's there to judge God in the flesh, you see? To see if he, uh, to see if he achieves the, the, the standard of true religion, righteousness, and worthiness, you know? And so when Jesus says, when I came into your house, uh, you did not uh, kiss me. You did not anoint me, you know, see what this woman has done. And she is the one who has salvation. She is forgiven, right? Uh, this, is, this is designed to bring not just Simon, but all of us who have this terrible, terrible in, in, inborn tendency to justify ourselves according to our own righteousness, according to our own obedience. Uh, this sermon breaks our hearts, right? Hopefully in the moment that Jesus said these things, Simon's own uh, eyes were brimming up with tears and he also began to weep. I, weep. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, but you, this is what Jesus was trying and in fact doing through his, uh, through his words to break a hardened heart that was convinced of its own righteousness so that Simon would become much like this woman, uh, a Christian, right? As opposed to uh, someone who belongs to this uh, legal religion of, uh, of uh, obedience and righteousness before God according to one's own obedience. Pastor Flame, as you said at the very beginning, this is a gem of a text. We've got about two and a half minutes here on the morning. Help us to, to wrap it up. And again, give us the, the wonderful gospel from this text at the end of Luke 7. Yeah, um, there are certain passages in the Bible where uh, you should put your uh, highlighter or underlining pencil to work. And this is one of them. Uh, the, the devil hates the righteousness of faith and salvation that comes by grace alone. He really does. He wants to turn us all into Pharisees like Simon was at the beginning of this text. And be, for that reason, 
when we fall into sin, oftentimes the devil holds before us the testimony of the law so that we despair. We say that I know that to be a Christian, you'll have to love much, and I have not loved. And he'll even push our hearts to the edge of thinking that I am not worthy at the, in, in the Lord's presence. I'm not worthy to, to, to re recline with him at his table. Therefore, I'm going to stay away from his table until I do what? Until I fix my life, until I get right with God. And then, and only then, will I feel righteous enough or worthy enough or pure enough to enter into God's sanctuary. No doubt this is happening. So many people have distanced themselves from the divine service, and they may even feel a bit of shame. I've stayed away from church for so long, and so many of the folks have already gone back to church, but I've already been away, and this could be embarrassing. And I'm going to feel shame if I go back to church now. Put aside your shame and embarrassment, because that's what this woman did. She didn't care about the righteousness that comes through obeying a law. What she cared about was Jesus, who set her free from the law's accusation. And that's why she came to worship at Jesus' feet, knowing that here she had heaven and eternal life. And so you should also see this passage, read it often, especially when you're tempted by the devil and the demons, and seek out Jesus where he desires to be found, not for the righteous, but for sinners. Come to church, hear the gospel, rejoice in the word, eat and drink Jesus' body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will, like this woman, find rest for your souls. Pastor Brian Flamy is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, helping us today with Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Pastor Flamy, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 7 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.